standing for our sermon scripture reading, which this morning is taken from Judges chapter 1, verses chapter 2, verse 5. So the word of the Lord. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we might fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went up with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adoni Bezek at Bezek, and they fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done so, the Lord, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites, who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. And the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also the springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenites, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites, who inhabited Zephath, and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. And the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites, who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, 
or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo or the inhabitants of Sidon or the inhabitants of Ahlab or of Achzib or of Helba or Afik or Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites and inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Aijalon and Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. This is a word of the Lord. Be to God. Let me be seated. Let me open us with another word of prayer. Father, as we approach your word, may you speak to us. Jesus, you who are the word of life, may you come near to us. May your word be active and powerful, sharper than a double-edged sword. May it bind up what is weak. May it break down what is not of you. And may it do the work that you have for it. May we be willing hearts listening and eager to hear from you. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you've probably noticed from the sermon scripture that was read, we are taking a break from our sermon series through Acts. We've been in Acts for the last three or four months. We're going to take a, a short break for the summer, and we're going to do a quick uh, series through Judges. We'll probably be in Judges through September. Now, Judges, you may ask, Mike, why would you ever want to do a series on Judges? Judges can be pretty dark at times. It's one of those books that when people write like children's Sunday school curriculums for it, it's mostly abridged, which is probably the right way to handle that for little kids. Like there may be a couple stories of Samson and his heroic feats, maybe some vague mentions of the faithlessness of Israel, but, but most of it's going to be abridged because, to be frank, Judges has probably some of the darkest, most violent uh, times just 
hard-to-read passages in the entire Bible. And so you may ask me, Mike, why would we want to spend 12 to 16 weeks in Judges? And the reason is that, yes, Judges can get very dark at times. It's true. But even more so, Judges shows us a God who even in the darkest of times is present. God is not a God who, when life gets chaotic, abandons the premises and goes somewhere else, but he's still present, even in the darkest moments, working and wooing his people to himself. Further, one of the things that's very interesting about Judges is we get uh, one of the most detailed pictures of what spiritual renewal looks like, the whole cycle, what spiritual decline looks like, how that happens, what it leads to eventually, but then also how God is the one who brings renewal. And that's why, again, even in the darkest of times, even when it seems like renewal is not possible, God is one who does this. He is one who does the impossible. Now, when we're looking at the world we live in and the times we live in, sometimes it can seem like we inhabit a world closer to judges than the world that we read of in Acts, where it seems like God is doing miracles all the time and there's so much just as exciting Sometimes it feels a little bit more like judges, where things are just chaotic and don't make sense, and it's not clear why things are happening. Not always, but sometimes. And that's why it's so helpful to see God was at work and present in their chaos, and so he's at work and present in our chaos as well. So our outline for us this morning as we begin the book of Judges is first point, beginning well. Second point, beginning to compromise. And the third point, God's faithful pursuit Now, I want to give some context to Judges, because Judges assumes you know the story of Joshua. It picks up in the middle of the story of Israel. And so, if if you remember, Moses is the one who delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt. He leads them to Mount Sinai, where they receive the law. He leads them all the way to the, the, the entrance of the Promised Land. But then Joshua, his assistant, is the one who takes them in to, to drive out the nations in Israel. And Joshua is not that much younger than uh, Moses, and he engages in this kind of whirlwind military campaign where essentially he goes in and he breaks the the power of the Canaanite nations. There were some powerful alliances um, that as Israel is going in, I mean, they are the underdogs. And so Joshua kind of comes in and just breaks the power of these alliances, captures some very significant cities, but then his time comes to an end. And there's still a lot of the land that has not been occupied yet. There's still many Canaanite nations living in in the land that they have been given by God. And so as Joshua comes to the end of his life, and there's still so much work to do, that's when he gives that um, uh, kind of charge to Israel that we read earlier in Joshua 23. And I want to read verses 6 to 7 again for you. Therefore, be strong. And he's speaking this to Israel. There's still work to do. He's about to die. Moses is dead. He's going to die. Be strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside neither from it, neither to the right nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or swear by them, or bow down, or, or serve them, or bow down to them. So here's Israel. They're supposed to drive out these nations so they might be a people who are wholly set apart for God. There's still work to be done, and and and. Joshua's dying. Now, I want to address, I wasn't sure where to address this, but as we read through Judges, there will be a number of times where we come up to customs and traditions that are are strange to us. Some of them are are, are offensive to us. But I think probably the hardest thing for a, a modern reader to read and understand when we come to the Old Testament story is God's command to Israel 
to go into this land and either drive out or kill everyone in the land. That does not sit well with us. And it's going to be hard for us to understand. So I want to actually address that because this is going to be kind of background for all of Judges. And so I kind of want to address this a little bit in the beginning here. And that way I don't have to keep coming back to it every Sunday. Um, but I have two things to say about this conquest. Or this, uh, it's called different things. But the conquest of the land. And the first is this. When God commanded Israel to drive out the people in the land, it was not an instance of genocide or ethnic cleansing or imperialistic expansion. The problem with the Canaanites was not their ethnicity. When we think of genocide, you think of the Hutsis or the, uh, the Rwandan genocide with Hutsis and the, I can't remember their names, but, or, or you think of, of, frankly, how we came into America and, and, and killed off the Native Americans. It wasn't an, a problem of ethnicity. And that's why Rahab, right, if you remember the story of Jericho, she's a Canaanite prostitute. And yet she believes in Yahweh and she's welcomed into the people of Israel. Or in our own text this morning, we see the Kenites who are the in-laws of Moses, who are Midianites. And they are welcomed into the tribe of Judah because they trust in the Lord. The problem is not the ethnicity of the Canaanites. It's they worship false gods. It's their religious practices, which if Israel allows them to remain in their presence is going to lead them away from worshiping the one true God. So it's not an instance of genocide. But secondly, it's also not an instance of, again, kind of imperialistic expansion because Israel's not allowed to plunder and rape and enslave which at that time would have been standard practice for one country and being another. I mean, you invade them and you take everything you can from them and you enrich yourselves as much as you can, but Israel was not, they were to destroy everything. Again, the goal was not Israel coming in to expand their imperial borders. The goal was to come in to create a land that is set apart for the Lord uh, so that the surrounding nations could look in and say, oh, this is the character of this God. This is what his people look like. This is what he asks of them. So that's the first thing. This is, the conquest is not genocide or imperialistic expansion. Okay, what is the conquest? Well, part of it is that it's, it's God's judgment. Now, here's the tension we're dealing with when we come to the conquest. God has told his own people to break his own commandments, in a sense. He's told them to break the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And he's told them to break the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. That's the tension here. Sometimes people look at the conquest and say, oh, this is why we need to move past the Old Testament, or this is why the God of the Old Testament can't be the God we see in Jesus Christ. But honestly, that misses attention because the same God who commanded people, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, is now telling his people, go into this land and do these things. How do we make sense of this? Well, again, Israel is not doing this on their own initiative but they are instruments of God's judgment on Canaan. This is what we see in Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 to 5. God speaking to Israel says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. When God sends Israel and to either drive out or kill the people in the land, it's not a, a command that applies to every person, as if I can pray and say, well, I feel like God is leading me to kill my neighbors. It was a particular instance of God bringing judgment on a people. In the Bible, it tells us one day, every person will stand before God and give account for their life. And some will receive judgment, and some will receive life, based on whether we've trusted in, in Jesus. And at times, God can bring that end-time judgment early, 
That's what's happening here. Now keep in mind, God far more often brings his end time grace early. When we place our faith in Christ and we receive the Holy Spirit, that's a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. That's that's the end time grace we receive when we stand before Christ face to face. We're receiving it early. That's far more common. But on occasion, God visits his judgment early. We see this in Noah and the flood. We also see it here in the conquest. And so when we read parts of this and it doesn't sit right with us and it bothers us, the basic question we ask is, does God have the right to judge? And the answer is yes. And why he chooses to visit judgment early here and not elsewhere, that's, that's not something he's told us. We don't know. But he is God, and so yes, he has every right to bring judgment, and it is good and righteous, um, for he is good and righteous. So I just, again, that doesn't answer all the questions. I know that. But I just wanted to give some thoughts on the, on the conquest before we get into our first point, which is they begin well. So here's Israel again. They have to finish this command God's given to drive out the peoples in the land. And they begin well. Verse 1, it says, Joshua has died, and they inquire of the Lord. They ask God, okay, who should go next? What should we do? Joshua's been leading them. He's been the one leading them inquire of the Lord. It's kind of like when a kid leaves home, right, and goes to college, and the parents aren't there to tell them what to do, and you start to see what's really in their hearts. What what are they really going to do? Well, here's Israel, and Joshua's gone, and the first thing they do is they inquire of the Lord. This is good. And God answers them. This is good. Second, we see harmony between the tribes. Uh, It's interesting. Judah and Simeon are personified, treated as, they kind of viewed as people. It says Judah, it says to his brother Simeon, again, these are two tribes of thousands of people. This beautiful language is personified as two brothers who are working in cooperation. I'll help you if you'll help me in return. And especially as we go through Judges, one of the themes is is intertribal strife and, in fact, even warfare. That's not how it begins. It begins with the tribes working together. And then also we see these two kind of anecdotal evidences of, of, of just the goodness of the people in the land, of, of justice and goodness of Israel's conduct, at least at this time. So first we see this example of justice being brought on a tyrant. This is in verses 5 to 7. It says, They found Adoni Bezek at Bezek, and they fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fled. They pursued him, caught him cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. So here's this king, Adoni Bezek, and and why would you cut off someone's thumbs and toes? Well, it ensures you will never fight again. You can't hold a sword without a thumb. You can't run without a big toe. But the emphasis here is, this is a man who had done this to 70 kings. I mean, again, when we talk about God's judgment on Canaan, we're seeing an example of common practices in the land. It's a, it's a scene that's almost beyond description. Seventy men who have been so dehumanized, they're, they're treated as worse than dogs beneath the table, the pick-up scraps having been tortured and mutilated. And so when Israel comes in, they're bringing justice on a cruel and vicious tyrant. Now, it's interesting, the way they do it is somewhat ambiguous. Adoni Bezek, the pagan or the Canaanite king, he himself says, this is God repaying me for the evil I've done. But how Israel carries out that justice is a little bit unclear whether that was good or, or right. What they're doing is they're already beginning to imitate the practices of Canaan. 
What they were supposed to do is go in and drive out or kill, not mutilate, torture, and all this stuff. So already at this point, we may start seeing some compromise. But the, the main feeling here is Israel's coming in and they're bringing justice in a place where there was just great violence and corruption. That's the first kind of anecdotal evidence of Israel's beginning well. They're bringing justice to this land. But secondly, we see courage and goodness and creativity in the relationships. So in verse 12 to 15, and Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I'll give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othnail, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said, Give me a blessing, since you have sent me into the land of the Negev. Give me also the springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So we meet Caleb here, the uh, namesake for my son. He was one of the 12 spies who went into the land originally. Him and Joshua were the only two who trusted God and said, no, we can, we can go in and take the land. Um, and here he's an old man. And he's entering, he's taking the territory that God has given to him. And he says, who, you know, anyone who takes this land, I'll, I'll give my daughter Aksa as, as his wife. And you've got to remember, God had commanded Israel to take this land. When he spoke to Joshua, he said, be strong and courageous. As you do this, it's an act of faith and obedience to God. Because Israel's going into a land where, again, they're, not, they're, not, they're the underdog. And so who's going to step out in courage and obey God's commandments? Well, no one else is jumping at it, but Othniel does. And he steps forward in faith in God, that God is the one who goes before him with great courage, and he captures the city. This is good Aksa might be a little bit different, though, for us. That probably rubs some of us the wrong way. It's like, well, the dad's like giving her ways if she's property. Okay. This is where we have to recognize we are looking at a time period, a culture is very different from ours. Uh, we have to be very careful about kind of interpreting our own egalitarian assumptions into this text. Um, nowhere, we may be offended at how Caleb treats Aksa, but no one else in the text is. Uh, it just would have been how things were done. And so we want to be careful about reading our own assumptions into it. That being said, we also want to be careful about reading this as some kind of divine mandate for betrothal. This is not laying out how, you know, people should get married. It's just how it was done, okay? Aksa is bothered by something, though. It's not how her father betrothes her to her future husband. It's what he gives her as kind of her dowry, which is this land of the Negev, it was a desert land. And so, again, far from being a property that, you know, her father is giving her away, she shows this resourcefulness and creativity by seeing the land they have and saying, hey, we need water if we're going to, like, water our, our livestock or, or be farmers. It's kind of humorous, okay? So, right, you have Othniel and Caleb, and they're, like, in this testosterone-fueled moment of, oh, we took this city, oh. And they're thinking about the ballads that are going to be written about them one day. And Oxa's like, guys, what good is a desert land if we have no water? She's thinking practically. And so she goes to her father, and again, her father treats her with dignity, with honor, and he grants her request. He's incredibly generous to her. As one commentator uh, puts this, this is an episode in which everyone, fathers and daughters, husbands and sons-in-law, function with boldness and creativity, but always respectful of the dignity and role of the other person within that 
socioeconomic environment. The point is, this is, this is just ordinary people living ordinary lives in faithfulness to God and his commandments. This is what it looks like in the promised land at this point. And as we'll see later in the book, this, uh, this changes. And especially how Oxus is treated, um, stark contrast as Israel begins to wander from the Lord and wander into moral and spiritual compromise and how the vulnerable in the society are treated. But this is Israel. They're beginning well. They understand that their success is from the Lord, so they inquire of him. They're walking with the Lord. Their, their, their time in the, in the land is marked by justice and goodness and peace and harmony. And it's in direct contrast to the nations that were there before. They're beginning well. It, it, to give a contemporary analogy, right, this is the person who's just become a Christian. And they're, 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 they're full of fire. They're passionate. They're excited to be there. Or, or the person who's rededicated their life to the Lord. Things are going well. But pretty quickly, the tone changes. And this gets to our second point, beginning to compromise. And the first hint that not all is going well is verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. It's the first hint. Wait, what's going on here? They're supposed to drive them out, but it says that they couldn't. And then this hint becomes a lot more obvious as we get through verses 27 through 36, where tribe after tribe fails to drive out the people they were supposed to. And you get this monotonous repetition, and it's, it's impossible to miss. That's why I read the whole thing, because it brings it out when you hear it. But something has gone wrong. Now, it's interesting. Judah, it says Judah fails in verse 19 because they were at a military disadvantage. They had chariots of iron. You know, chariots don't work that well in the hill country, but on the plains, if you're going up against chariots and you're just a footman or a foot soldier, like, it's not going to go well for you. But when he gets to Manasseh in verse 27, the reason why Manasseh doesn't drive out the nations, it says in verse 27, is because the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. See that? So, so Judah, it's like, well, there's this military disadvantage. Manasseh, it's just the Canaanites wanted it more. And then each tribe follows suit. And it's interesting, actually, when you look at verses 27 to 35, you see a progression. Again, Judah doesn't drive them out. Judah disobeys the Lord because of this military disadvantage. Manasseh doesn't drive them out because they just didn't want it enough. Same thing with Ephraim and Zebulun. But then you get to Asher. And Asher fails to drive out so many people that it now describes... So with Judah, Manasseh, and Ephraim, it's like, well, there's still some Canaanite villages sprinkled throughout the people of Israel. But you get to Asher, and there's so many Canaanites left that the Asherites are, descri are described as dwelling among the Canaanites. And then you get to Dan, and Dan doesn't even get to, in in he doesn't even take any of his land. Completely unsuccessful. And, and if you remember this, in 12 weeks, when you get to chapter 19 and 20, we see the tribe of Dan is searching for their inheritance because they weren't able to get any of it. And then the way the chapter ends is by delineating the boundaries of the Amorites, who are a Canaanite nation, not Israel. So we see a progression, and this hint of not, something not going well, verse 19, and then it gets worse and worse and worse. What is going on in this chapter? And what's going on is we see a half-hearted obedience to God. Israel has not rejected Yahweh yet. They've not gone after other gods, as we as, at least it doesn't tell us they have, yet. 
but they also are not doing what God has called them to do. They become half-hearted in their obedience and worship of the Lord. Again, God had given a specific command. Drive all the nations out. Don't mix with them. And for whatever reason, they don't complete the task. Again, Israel has no right to do this apart from the explicit command of God. It is God's judgment. At the same time, Israel has no right to deviate from what God has commanded them to do. It's not like Israel has come to the promised land and said, no, I'm not going to do it, God. I'm not going to enter the promised land. It's more like Israel has come and said, well, I think that's enough. I think we're good. Let's not be unrealistic here. We don't need to drive out these other nations. Like, they're not a military threat to us anymore. I think this is enough. And besides, did God really say we had to drive them all out? There's half-hearted obedience. And the problem with that is that when Jesus sums up the Old Testament, he says the most important thing about all of this is that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Brothers and sisters, God does not care what we give to him. He does not care what we can do for him or do for the church. He's not impressed with our accomplishments. He's not disappointed with our lack of accomplishments. What he wants is our hearts, all of us. He wants our total devotion to him. And half-hearted obedience, if it's left unchecked, always leads to spiritual and often moral compromise. And that's the progression of the whole book of Judges. It begins here and it just progresses to more compromise and more compromise and more darkness and more distortion and more evil. Even the judges themselves, there's like a, a progression that they start pretty well and they get a little bit less good and, and the last judge we get is Samson, a man who is a riddle of contradictions. Gifted with so much from the Lord and yet so full of himself and a narcissist and ruled by his passions. This whole process of spiritual decline, it begins in our chapter. And, and, and here's the thing, it, it begins with a very specific moment. And so as we look at the beginning to compromise, I want to focus on the specific moment where, 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 where things turn. And it's in verse 19. Let me read it for us again. Again, this is that first hint that not all is going well. And the Lord was with Judah... And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. This is a very problematic verse. God had told Israel, when you enter the promised land, it's not going to be because of your strength that you will drive out the peoples. It's going to be because God goes before you, and this is God's work. And that's why when they came to Jericho, what was their military strategy? March around the city seven times and yell. There's no military textbook that will describe that as an effective military strategy. The whole point was, you're going to be at a military disadvantage the entire time, but God is the one who's doing this. You're just his instruments. And here we get to verse 19, and it says, The Lord was with Judah, but they couldn't take the plane because the inhabitants had chariots of iron. What's going on here? Well, we don't, it doesn't tell us exactly what happened. Maybe Judah just gave up too early. Maybe they saw the chariots of iron and they were just too afraid to try. But this is where compromise begins. It began when Judah said to God, I can't do this. 
They're way stronger than we are. It would be suicide to try. It would be foolish. But in reality, what Judah was saying to God is, I won't. Because God had already promised them, I will go before you. I will do this. You just need to obey. And God never reneges on a promise. Judah said, I can't. But what they were really saying is, I won't. And that's where compromise begins. I wonder, are there places in our lives where we're saying to God, I can't. I can't do that. But in reality, we're saying, I I won't. Tim Keller has um, three common areas where we often say can't, but what we really mean is won't. I thought they're very helpful, so I want to share them. The first is forgiveness. We say, I, I, God, I cannot forgive this person. But the thing is, is that Jesus, our Lord, has commanded us in Matthew 18 to forgive. And what Jesus commands, he gives. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. You worship a Lord who rose from the grave and has conquered sin and death. And so that means is that Christ will never command you to do something he won't give you the power to do. It means that by his power, yes, we can forgive. We can soften our hearts and forgive and act as if the wrong had never happened. When we say we can't, we mean we won't. Now, sometimes we won't forgive for very complicated reasons, and I, I, wanna be, I don't want to trivialize that. But very often, we don't want to forgive because we want to hold on to our bitterness and our resentment and our feelings of self-righteousness. And so we say, I can't, but what we really mean is I won't. A second area that we commonly do this is with difficult truth-telling. We say, God, I, I, can't, I can't tell this truth, this hard truth to this person. It'll hurt them too much. And here's where we have to have a little bit of self-knowledge because some of us probably shouldn't speak the truth as much as we want to. But for others, oftentimes when we say that, what we mean is, God, I won't do this. Because if I say this truth to this person, they won't like me as much. And I'm not willing to risk that. Again, we say, I can't do this, but what we mean is I won't. Last area is just in temptation. And we hear this, someone says, I can't resist doing this sin, even though I know it's wrong. And this is, a, this is a tough one because sin is often has an addictive quality to it. Much sin does. And so it can feel like, I can't stop doing this. And with some sins, that, it may be true that on your own initiative, by your bare willpower, bare knuckling it on your own, you may not be able to. But again, guys, Jesus rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death. And what means is that it may have to be by confessing sin to your brothers and sisters in Christ and seeking help, crying out to God for mercy, putting in like boundaries in, in your life. Yes, you can. I worked in college ministry for three, three years, and, and you know, pornography is just so ubiquitous. And pornography is addictive. Absolutely. Now, when I was in college ministry, right, I would only disciple men. So my experience is only with men, but this applies for women who struggle with pornography as well. But oftentimes, I would meet with men, and, and, and they're just like, they know they, don't, they know they shouldn't be looking at pornography. They don't want to look at pornography, but again and again and again, they find themselves back in this pattern, and it feels like I can't. Maybe I can for a week or a month, but I'm going to be back in it eventually. I can't. 
And for many of these men, I agree, as long as they keep their smartphones. I think if you have a history of porn addiction and you have a smartphone, it's like being an alcoholic and living above a liquor store. And you're shocked that you stumble. But what's interesting is when I tell these young men, hey, you should get rid of your smartphone. I can't do that. Well, you can't or you won't. And oftentimes, this is, we say can't, but we mean won't. And this is the turning point for Israel. This is Israel saying, I can't, God. But what they're really saying is, I don't trust you, God. I won't do this. I won't have faith in you. And this is where everything begins to go south. And brothers and sisters, just like the Israelites, we're also a broken mess. Humanity has not changed in three, 4,000 years. Yes, we want to do what is right. We want God. We do. But far too often, we want other things more. And we're wholehearted in our pursuit of money or prestige or influence or just comfort. But our devotion to the Lord languishes and we become half-hearted. But then sometimes we wake up and we see like, oh, my obedience has become half-hearted. We see where we are. And in those moments, we find out a truth that is almost too beautiful to realize. Almost too good to be true. And it would be almost where God himself who told us that this is the case. But we wake up with Israel. We realize we've compromised. We realized where we are. And God does not wait for us to come groveling back to him. God doesn't wait for us to do some kind of penance. He comes running after us before we wake up. He's running after us when we're in our darkness, when we're in our compromise, when we don't care about God. He's coming after us already. And that's what brings us to our third point, God's faithful pursuit. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Again, Israel's compromised. And what does God do? He doesn't say, well, I'm done with them. I'm going to find the next group of people. He goes after them. It says the angel of the Lord here, and we don't know who this is. This angel of the Lord is mentioned two other times in Judges. He appears to Gideon, and then he appears to the parents of Samson. And what's interesting is that every time that he appears, the people treat the angel of the Lord as if he is the very presence of God. They fall on their face and they think, I have seen the face of the Lord. And so Christians throughout the centuries have seen the angel of the Lord as a pre-incarnation of Jesus, the Son of God. But do you see the picture here, what's happening? Israel is trending downwards. 
what does God do? He sends his son. That's the whole storyline of the Bible. Israel had, I mean, God had already saved them out of Egypt. He had given them his law. He had given them so much. 19 verses in, they're compromising. That's, that's just the human heart. Prone, we have the ability for so much good, but our proneness is towards self-absorption, self-worship, and all the darkness that comes out of that. But God does not leave us. He comes to us. And why does God come after us? Because he is the Lord, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God comes after us because for God so loved the world. And by the way, this is the only possible answer to the guilt and shame we all experience, that we bury it in our hearts, we feel it deeply. We may try to tell ourselves we're okay, we may try to listen to positive self-help talk, none of it works. The only thing that answers that guilt and that shame is when we look up and we see Jesus coming towards us, not at our best, at our worst moments, the moments we hope no one ever knows about. And we hear the footsteps of our Lord. And when he comes towards us, there's not disappointment in his eyes. He's not angry. He loves us. He's coming after us. Because he loves us enough that he won't let us wander from him without a fight. And when you see God coming towards you, who knows you to the bottom of who you are, and he loves you, that's the only possible answer we can give to our own shame and guilt. Yeah, I know I'm a mess. God sent his son to die for me. His word is frankly more important than even my own heart. But it's interesting, the result of this encounter with the angel of God is not joy and rejoicing, but it's weeping. And God does love us. I hope you hear that this morning. But his love is holy. And what, what that means is he will not share us with anyone or anything. And often what we can't see, brothers and sisters, what we can't see is our best good, the best thing for us, our very best good is to be holy God's is to be his alone. That's the human glorified, as C.S. Lewis said. That's us at our best, but it's hard for us to see that when, when, when we're becoming wholehearted in our devotion to something or someone else. And so again, because God loves us with a holy love, he will do what it takes to bring us to repentance, even if it's only through a veil of tears. so that we might know true goodness and true love and true beauty and true joy. So here as Judges begins, we see the beginning of what will be a regular pattern throughout Judges, which is Israel falters, Israel compromises, but the God who redeemed them from Egypt goes after them. And each time Israel compromises, again, it shows the, the inability of the human heart to truly and fully love what is good to truly and fully love God. And what it's pointing us to is that what we need most of all is not a little fix on the side. 
or a little nudge in the right direction, but what we need is a full renovation of the heart. We need what Jesus himself will one day say in John 3, we need to be born again. We need to be new people. And God will do that through his son, Jesus. Praise his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are God who runs after us. We would not believe it is too good to be true if we, don't, if we hadn't read it in your word. We don't deserve it. We know that. But yet you give so abundantly. And you've given of your son so that we might experience a true renovation of the heart. Not to just be band-aided over, but to be made into new people. May you continue to make us anew every day into the image of our Lord, for we love him, and we want to be like him. May you do this by the power of your word, through the power of the spirit, through the faith that you've placed in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You're dismissed.